begins with chapter 11, verse 2 of 1 Corinthians. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head since he is in the image and the glory of God, but women is in the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman for man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord... Woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For a woman, as woman has made, excuse me, for as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. God's Word. The children are dismissed for Children's Church. And uh, you may be seated. Now, after having read that Scripture, does anybody want to come up and preach this morning? <laughs> the... Uh, First time back in the pulpit for a while, and that's what I come up with, huh? Uh, what I'd like to do this morning is actually focus on the first three verses, or the first two verses, starting verse two, and uh, actually take a step backwards uh, and look at a couple of other verses that I believe are part of it. Uh, you know, First Corinthians chapter uh, chapters eight through fourteen. Uh, talk about Christian liberty, the eating of meat and idols, and all the things that BJ has been talking to us and sharing with us in chapters eight through ten about worship, and and then ultimately uh, as we get up into the other uh, chapters uh, towards twelve, thirteen, and fourteen, we'll be talking about spiritual gifts and other aspects of the body of working together. Um, what we're talking about is what is our liberty and our freedom in Christ. And, and, and uh, so let me read a statement from uh, a pastor from uh, the uh, Palo Alto. Uh, his name is Ray Stedman. The balance between freedom, the unchanging demands of God's moral law, and concern for our neighbor recurs throughout chapters 8 through 14. Balance between Christian liberty, Christian behavior, and outside witness is important, not just in church, but in our homes, in our work, and in our play. 
And so what he's saying is that Christian liberty is a, is, is a very real thing. There are certain things that we can do in Christ that we're free to do, and yet maybe just the circumstances, as B.J. was talking about over the last couple of weeks, uh, as to meat sacrifice to idols and stuff, certain circumstances may come up where if we choose to eat, we may become a negative witness to other people. And so our goal is always to keep in mind that we want to see people one to Christ. If something I am free to do in, in a general format in a specific setting might cause someone to stumble, then Paul says, don't do it. That's just as simple as it is. And, and, you, know, you don't have to introduce your freedom to say, oh, I'm free in Christ. And this was part of the problem that was going on in the Corinth church. I think, again, B.J. made a very clear picture of this in the sense that uh, people were seeing themselves, I, I tend to call them super-Christians. They, we, we, we know the Word of God, we are, we're, we are totally saved, and therefore we are free to do kind of as we please. And, and cut corners and, and other things where that doesn't specifically spell it out as sin in the Scripture, but in the meantime, cause people to stumble and, and, and this type of thing. And so Paul is very explicit about how important it is that we consider the environment that we're in and the people within that setting as to how we behave as Christians. Going into this study, I want to back up and take a look at the last paragraph of chapter 10. The last paragraph of chapter 10 uh, says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything, I do not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they might be saved. There's the, the, the gist of really everything up through chapter 14. It rests in that context. And then he goes on, Be imitators of me as I am in Christ. And you look at that. I don't know how many of you are bold enough to say, Be an imitator of me you know, in my Christian walk. Now, I have to be honest with you, the, the, the rendering for this may be more like be imitators of me as much as I emulate Christ. But the idea is we are to be setting a Christian example wherever we go. Uh, and, and so we, we tend to uh, want to keep that in mind. How would Christ, you know, the, 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 the big push a, a decade ago was what would Jesus do? And that's never been not the push as far as Paul is concerned. It wasn't a trend. It's the way we should look at everything. What would Jesus do about this, about that? How would He act in this situation? And in some cases, you would be able to do one thing, and in other cases, you may refrain from doing those things because it will be a stumbling block for the person you're with. People ask me, Pastor Bob, is it okay for Christians to drink? There's no Scripture barring Christians from drinking. There are some Scriptures talking about moderation and uh, not being drunk 
on wine and various things, but there's no one that basically... But let's say you are in the uh, situation where you are sitting with a number of people that you know have a problem with drinking. Now, what do you do now? Well, you're free to drink, you have a glass of wine, but in this particular situation, I'll refrain. You're maybe out to dinner or something in that context. Um, raised in a family of, of, of uh, people who had a problem with alcohol, including myself at one point, uh, sitting around a group of people and having somebody order a, a drink at dinner is a temptation. It's kind of easy to turn around and say, oh, I'll have one too. And uh, the next thing you know, I'm in trouble. You might not be in trouble, but I, I might not do so well over the next few days. So, we want to be considerate as much as we can. Now, you won't always know, but as much as you can, be aware of who you're with, where you are, the setting you're in, and strive to be a person who is a witness for Christ without creating a stumbling block for the people that are with you. Now, there's a point in time where no matter what the situation is, you have to do what Christ would have you do. That might become, in itself, a stumbling block for somebody. That's no longer your problem. If you're being obedient to Scripture and it causes a stumbling block out here uh, for somebody who's anti-Christian or an antagonist towards Christian or uh, whatever, uh, that's not something that you're to worry about. That's not the things we're talking about. What we're talking about are those settings where you are cordial and invited and, and have a, an opportunity to witness and do the best you can to serve Christ in that process. And again, with that context, that, that, but that of many, that they might be saved. Okay? So, it's important this morning that uh, you understand uh, God has a set order, if you will, of things. Uh, in the uh, uh, chapter 14, verse 40, it says, but all things should be done decently and in order in the context of a worship service in church. And so God has a certain order to things. And again, with the goal in mind that many might be saved. That's always the end target, that, that we will grow in our maturity as a body of Christ. Why? So that we will be an influence in the community we're in that what? Many might be saved. This order of, of things actually is, is clear over, you know, it's going to be over the next few chapters as we go through them. Uh, but there's three distinct points that I want to make this morning. I want you to look uh, at chapter uh, 11, verse 3. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. And the head of Christ 
is God. Look at the first one. The head of every man is Christ. Now, there's even a, a, in this, there's, there's the question is, is that every man in the church, and when man is a generic term here, man and woman, you know, everybody, every person in the church, or is the head of every man uh, meaning universal? Personally, I believe it's generic. I believe it's all mankind. Or we could just use the word humanity. All of humanity. Christ is the head of every man. Now, they may not accept Him as the head. Okay, that would mean they're unsaved. That doesn't change that at some point in time, as the head of every man, He will appoint a, a, a justice and, and judgment according to His Word on every single person in the, in, in the universe. Uh, the head of every man is Christ. Um, many scriptures uh, can detail this, but for me, there's one that I, I look at that first defines this more probably for the church in Ephesians chapter 1. Let's see, where do I want to start with this? Let's just start with verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may... Uh, give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you. What are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints? Can you, you, you take time some point to just think on what it is God has got in store for us as believers? You know, a lot of times people read Revelation and they, they get intimidated or frustrated with the, the scary parts of it and miss the awesomeness of it. And, and here, right here, it says, the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints and what is immeasurable greatness of His power toward us. You realize that it's, it's as if, and, and there's a, a glimpse of this in the Old Testament, but... A man is standing before the, the before God to be judged, and Satan is standing there with his list. And 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 it, you know there isn't one of us that doesn't have a, a roll-up page of lists, okay? And and he's ready to accuse this man. And God simply tells Satan to be quiet, and he embraces this man. Because he saved him. That's all there is to it. Satan is sitting there, can't open his mouth. He's been ordered quiet. He wants to say, but, but, but look at all of this. And Christ says, you know, God says, this has been covered at the cross. And so you look at these kind of phrases. Uh, the rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us uh, in, in chapter 2. Of, of Ephesians. It's just awesomeness. 
So He has this power towards us who believe according to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and, and seated Him at the right hand of the heavenly places, far above rule, all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above, <coughs> excuse me, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And He put all things under His feet and gave Him as head. Here's that picture again. Gave Him as head over all things to the church which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. So here's a picture of Christ, the head of the church. And when we rest in Christ as believers, we are His body. He is our head. And, 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 and that visual idea is, is that we are part of the family of God. We are heirs, joint heirs with Jesus, Romans says. So many different things in reference to the greatness of what God has poured out on us. And I, like I said, I suggest that uh, you know, it's something we should dwell on more. Think about. Rest in. Be thankful for. Indeed, the head of every man is Christ. And we see this in the negative capacity in the sense that every person in this world verses 10 and 11 of, of uh, Philippians chapter 2 says so that at the, you know uh, well let's go to verse 9 therefore God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name that is above every name not just the name of the people in the body of Christ He's not only Lord over that, but every name. His name is above every name. So that all, uh, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. That means in Hades. In other words, every knee must bow to Jesus Christ. He is the head over humanity. Head in the context of one in authority. Oh, every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth. And every tongue, and this is the most amazing thing when you think about it, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every tongue Saved, unsaved. It has, every person is subject to Christ and at some point in time will confess that He is the one in authority. So here we start with this picture. The head of every man is Christ. I want to drop to the third one. The head of Christ is God. Now, that one poses its own little difficulties as well. Uh, Jesus says in, in, in chapter 10 of, of John that uh, uh, I and the Father are one. And yet here it says the head of Christ is God, i.e. God the Father. 
But Jesus said some interesting things about His ministry. One was, He said, My food is to do the will of Him who sent Me. My, my Father is greater than I. And yet, Jesus Himself said, I and the Father are one. By the way, all three of those are from John. <laughs> you know, And so, within the framework of that, you're saying, is there a contradiction there? How do we deal with that? I'm going to try my best to help you with that this morning. In John chapter 1, the very first verses, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. So this Word is the Creator of all things. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, for some people, they might ask what the Word is. I think most of us know the obvious answer. But... John wants to make sure we get this correct. And so in verse 14 of chapter 1, he says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He whom I said... He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Wait a minute. John's born before Jesus. He was before me. Emphasizing the idea of Christ's eternal life. And from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. And then listen to this. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is the Father's, at the Father's side. He has made Him known. No one has seen God the Father because God the Son is the only one that has, that has made Him known to us so far. God, came, uh, God the Son, Jesus Christ. And by the way, the word Christ is, is God-man. Implied, He's the Messiah. He's the God-Man. He's the one that comes in the flesh. That's why it's so important to see. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He became man in order to take away the sins that kept us separated from God. I just was there, but just... Quickly going back to Philippians chapter 2. Paul writes, just, to, just before the verses that I, I read a moment ago, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Jesus did not think in terms of to be equal with God as a thing to be grasped. Why? 
because He had it. God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one. Jesus is God. And so, He didn't have to grasp at it. But look at the significance of this. Verse 7 says, But He made Himself nothing. This is His submission to the Father he become, to become the Savior of man. It says He made Himself nothing. It means He emptied Himself. It's as if He had a royal robe and, and, and this is simply a metaphor and a picture. Don't try to read into it more than that. This isn't a scriptural thing. But it's as if he had a robe. He took off the robe and set it at the Father's feet and, and, and separated himself from the authority and became truly a man. When Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, we know of three temptations. We know of three temptations. But it says he was tempted for 40 days. Who knows all the different things that he was tempted in? I believe as a man in every, in every way. Satan put everything before him. But finally he put temptations that no man could do in reference to the things only a God, the Son of God, could do. And even those, Jesus says, no. You're not going to tempt me to abuse this power. You're not going to tempt me to bypass the cross by giving me the world now. The head of Christ is God. He emptied Himself. Again in Philippians Chapter 2, verse 7. Taking the form of a servant. The word is literally bond servant. One who has given himself over and to get himself out of that bondage has to pay a price. What's the price? The cross. Humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. And then we come to those verses. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus has willingly put himself, even though he is in that Godhead in the Trinity, he has willingly put himself under the authority of the Father. He is in subjection. And that's what Paul says. This is an amazing thing. The head of Christ is God. He's equal with God, but yet he is in submission. Why are these two things so important that the head of every man is Christ and then the head of Christ is God to understand? Because then when we get back to this picture of the husband and wife, we can see how God has a plan and these all fit into it. If Jesus can be in submission to the Father, we certainly can figure out how to work in the plan that He has put together. So back to the second one in that statement. The head of the wife is the husband. 
By the way, make it clear, we're not speaking about dominion. When I say dominion, that means the husband is not in a place where he is allowed to lord it over his wife. He is not a ruler over his wife. It's an interesting thing. I've heard this verse uh, abused, if you will, or misused. In uh, Genesis chapter 3, the older your Bible gets, the harder it is to get to those first pages. In Genesis chapter 3, Eve has eaten of the fruit of the tree of knowledge. She has shared it with Adam. By the way, when you read it very clearly, it says, and Adam was right there with her. Adam was supposed to protect her, and he didn't. And when you look at the judgment that falls on him, it's interesting. In verse 14... Well, first off, God, you know, the, the story, God goes looking for them and says, where are you? For an omnipotent God, that was simply a question of, there's something wrong here, what's up? Okay, and I know what it is. And they had been hiding because they heard God coming. They'd sewed some fig leaves together to, to cover their private parts. And that was the first time that it had ever concerned them because now sin had entered into their minds. And now to fear God in a context of judgment, He's going to be mad at us. And He said, where are you? Adam, where are you? He says, what's happened here? And Adam very graciously says, God, the woman you gave me, Made me eat. She gave it to me. It's her fault. That's what sin does. How fast it took hold. Eve says, "The certain made me. Do it. The devil made me do it. Made me think of the old oh man. This is really aging me now, huh? The old Flip Wilson show, where he had the the routine. The devil made me do it. But that was her answer. The devil made me do it." And God is basically saying, doesn't work. I told you no, and you did. It's that simple. So the Lord has three beings here that need to be talked to. He says to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat. All the days of your life, I have, you know, I will put enmity between you, very specifically, and the woman. I will put enmity. I will put a uh, a, a a wedge between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. Literally, her seed and your seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Do you realize that that's the first prophecy of Christ coming in the cross? It says, you know, you will bruise His heel. What happens when you get a heel bruise suddenly? Achilles? 
the story, tendon, you know, boom, down you go. Maybe you've even stepped off the curb and bruised your heel by catching it and you can't stand up for a few moments. He's saying, Satan, you're going to have the opportunity to bruise the seed of woman. Notice it doesn't say seeds. It says seed of woman. Singular. And you'll appear to take him down. But he will rise and he will you know, uh, bruise your head. What that means is he will have full authority over you. He will rise and have full authority over you. Now to the woman, he says, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Meaning he shall have dominion over you. That is a context of something that happened because of the fall. People who use that particular Scripture in reference to uh, complementarianism and, 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 and male dominance or male having authority over a woman has misused that Scripture. That is part of the fall. That is a result of the fall. And it's not, a, you know, it's not the position. And so, instead of getting the husband that you... You know, the, the caring, longing husband and, and, and merciful husband, the Christ-like husband, if you will, that Ephesians will talk about. He, he says, you're going to get a, a person who rules over you. And then to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you are returned to the ground. For out of it you were taken and for, uh, for you are dust. And to dust you shall return. So the judgment was, was very clear. In Galatians chapter 3, uh, we have a scripture that is, is frequently used in showing the equality of, of, of people within the, the framework of the church. And uh, just uh, 28 and verses, uh, verses 28 and 29. Um, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. Now, we're talking about a culture that had more slaves than free people in some cases. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. What is established there by Paul is that we are all, every one of us, men, women, and children, equal in the, in the body of Christ. There isn't one before the throne of God that holds more importance than another. The pastor isn't higher ranking than, than the parishioner. It's, it's just, you know, we're talking about every one of us before the throne of God are looked on as a child of God. Period. It has nothing to do with all the things in this world that 
create order and sometimes disorder. And then in Ephesians, just a few pages over, chapter 5, again, these are verses I'm sure you're familiar with. It says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit everything to, in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives and beat them frequently. No. Uh, you know, it, it says here very clearly, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her, that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Period. We're not talking about dominion. We're not talking about ruling over. It was talking about loving your wife as Christ loves the church. Sacrificial love. The love that is willing to say, whatever is necessary for me to do, I give myself for you and to you. So let's not get this confusion, you know, uh, about uh, men lording it over. I, I have some stories that I could tell you about some friends, that, uh, different friends in different places of churches that they ended up in, where the husband came home and expected, literally expected, dinner to be on the table in 30 minutes, his slippers to be at his recliner, and, and those things better be in order. If she hasn't had time to do it that day, there's something wrong. And within the framework of that group, and it wasn't a mainstream denomination or anything, but it was a, more of a cult actually. But in the thought of it was they were using these scriptures as uh, of authority where the woman is to submit. John Stott, I don't know, you know I'm sure many of you have heard his name over the years. Uh, a real scholar in the Word of God, written a lot of books and, and, and stuff, and it's just, he's a, for me, a, a person to refer to often as to looking up things and trying to understand. He has an interesting way of putting this. I'd like to share it with you. Headship is the authority to serve. Headship is the authority to serve. How did Christ use His headship to serve and to save? He's saying husbands should be doing the same thing. If you're loving your wife as Christ loved the church, you should be looking a way to serve her, to lift her up, to make her life better, more secure, whatever is needed in her, her life. If headship means power in any sense, then it is power to care, not to crush. Power to serve, not to dominate. Power to facilitate self-fulfillment, not to frustrate or destroy it. And in all this, the standard of the husband's love is to be 
the cross of Christ on which He, Jesus, surrendered Himself even to death in His selfless love for His bride. The standard and, and, and the, 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 the direction for the husband's leading is the Bible. And a wife is not obligated to follow her husband contrary to the Word of God. I wanted to add that. It just put it in at the last minute here. But I want you to be sure you understand. Just because the husband says to do something, if it's contrary to the Word of God you are not obligated to do it. There are some teachings that I do not agree with within the framework of the, of the church uh, at, at large. Uh, some very prominent speakers that say, no matter what the husband says, you've got to do it. You've got to be the obedient wife. And he will take the responsibility if it's wrong. I do not believe that's what the Scripture says for you to do. You are to be obedient to Christ first because Christ is the head of every man. Every human being. And Christ is your head, as well as my head, and your husband's head, and the church's head. The uh, and by the way, I, I I initially got that information some time ago from uh, a couple of articles that Sam Storms, uh, also another prominent writer and, and speaker in the church. Uh, put together a few years ago. So, just wanted to share that with you as a kind of a last thought. But as we approach communion, I want to go back to to chapter uh, Ephesians, uh, back to chapter 1. Uh, and read these verses again. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as He chose us in in Him before the foundation of the world. Again, that's so awesome to think about. Before Before the world was even formed, He was thinking of us. That we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace which He has lavished upon us. In the pouring out of blood of Christ, the Son of God, God was able to lavish, that is to more than abundantly give grace to us. In Him we have redemption through the blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace which He has lavished upon us. In all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven, and things on earth.
God has lavished His grace, His mercy, His love upon us. He did it through the cross and the blood of Christ. And so every time we share communion, we are recalling that event as the covering over us today. It's not, a, it's not something that just happened 2,000 years ago. It's something that happened and still has its power today. And so we rest in that awesome grace of God. We are saved through the blood of Christ and our confession in believing that He is the Son of God. When we sing our communion song, ask come on up for that. Um, we have our communion up here. Uh, ask you to pick it up and, and take it back to the seat. Hold it until we've all been served that we might share it together. And uh, we'll just... Uh, as soon as the song is over. Yeah.
First Corinthians in chapter 11. The next thing we'll be talking about is the Lord's Supper. And Paul makes it very clear. He says, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when He was betrayed took bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it, and He said, This is My body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. Let us share the bread together. In the same way also, Jesus took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in My blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of Me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you will claim the Lord's death until He comes again. Let us share. Father, we thank You for the opportunity to come to this table together to celebrate what You have done, are doing, and are yet to do. It is amazing when we contemplate all of it. You came. You went to the cross for us. You shed Your blood for us. You see us through now, through Your Word and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And You give us the hope of Your return. Face to face. Seeing you face to face. We long for that day. And until that day comes, Lord, we ask that You would cause us to be the witness and testimony You need us to be. Give us an empathy for those around us that we might speak the things they need to hear and, and draw them into Your presence that many might be saved. We worship You. We praise You. And we ask now, Lord, that You would go with us Open our eyes to the world around us and the needs around us and cause us to find You frequently in Your Word as we worship You. In Jesus' name, Amen. Would you stand as we close? And I want to thank you for being here this morning. And uh, I don't know if the marathon run is still going on, but be cautious of runners downtown. And... uh, Lord bless. Thank you for being here this morning. The church is one foundation with Jesus Christ through
Oh. Mm-hmm.